Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. And away we go, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, you're back on the epic narrative and we are about to take on episode three. Now, we got done with chapter one last time, and as I hope you were catching, the culture that has been developing in Egypt, probably now for a hundred years, is one of fear by the government and control of the Hebrews, because the Hebrews keep multiplying. The Hebrews keep gaining numbers, and this is a problem because they can't get rid of them now because now they're an intricate part of their economic system through the through slavery. Now, before they were a part of their economic system because they they uh, you know were they were in charge of the livestock and the and the seeds and all that sort of thing, and they they had a tremendous influence on all that was going on, and all that was just fine and dandy as long as Joseph and his relatives were alive. But now that they've been dead for a while. Policies have shifted, and now we've created this culture of fear where we still can't get rid of them. And and that was, I'm sure some practical people were like, why don't we just tell them to leave? Why can't we just kick them out of the country? But now, if we kick them out of the country, we, the elite, as, as Egyptians tended to view themselves when it came to the uh, the culture differences, the ethnic differences, they were like, we're the elite. They should serve us. They have nowhere to go. They are a slave nation. They are without purpose. They are without a leader. They have elders, which is fine. And they have a religion that we don't we don't understand. We don't really agree with. They worship just one God. Like, how weird is that? So all of this is is going on, and and the culture just continues to churn out, churn out, churn out these ideas that the Hebrews aren't as valuable, the Hebrews aren't as smart. And of course, that's also becoming somewhat true in that the Egyptians were allowed to get a higher education and more detailed education. The Hebrew children had to figure out how to do things enough to be good slaves. So sometimes they were trained in a, in a certain type of, of uh, literature or you know reading and writing because they had to perform a task, not because they wanted to culturally lift up the whole uh, the whole nation. So it's it's a crazy crazy culture of fear and of course de- death. Right, we've got the death of the babies. Now when we when we last we talked, the edict had gone out from the from the ruler from the pharaoh that said. Uh, all Egyptians can kill all baby males. But that was probably, even though technically no one was going to be prosecuted if you were an everyday Egyptian, it was really about the officials, all officials, all the taskmasters, all of the supervisors, all of the, um, the, the, what do I want to say? The like those that are involved in the marketplace. What, what if you had any sort of official job in Egypt? You had the right, if you saw a Hebrew baby boy, you could you could kill him. And you were actually kind of obligated to kill him. And and 
the way the language is written, if you remember, it's not a big deal if you kill a Egyptian male baby as a mistake. Like if if uh, if they're not, you know, if they're if they're just in your way or whatever. Like it's just this culture of death that's out there. Now, do I think the everyday uh, farmer out on the out on the plains of Egypt had the had this in you know this raging uh, anger inside of them against the Hebrews and wanted to kill every child that they saw? No, I don't. I think probably most of them thought this is ridiculous. You know, I'm a farmer. I've got things to do. I'm a rancher. I got things to do. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the Hebrews. I mean, look at them. You know, they, they helped me out doing this. They helped me out doing that. Uh, you know, people that contractors that were building cities and building man, uh, uh, not mansions. What do, what do they call them? Palaces and, and laying down these intricate, um, mosaics. All of that was, was done through slave, slave labor. You had a really you know, good slave. If you had a Hebrew that understood, you know, uh, uh, not economics, engineering and and artistry, and they were doing a good job. You didn't you didn't care if they had a a, a male baby back at home. They, you really didn't. What you wanted them to do is you wanted them to show up the next day and do do their work because you were getting paid for that. They weren't, but you were. So there's there are multiple layers going on in this when it comes to the culture of the of or to the everyday life of, of the Egyptians, but the culture of the Egyptians was one of fear and death and compliance. Now, this is when tradition says Jochebed and RM, which would have been his wife, um, separated. Oh, yeah. So you probably need to read some verses, Bob. Okay, yeah. Listen, I'm going to read you guys uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, but then we are going to kind of go off for off off, script, off scripture for a while. <laughs> I know you guys know I do that all the time uh, and and you don't mind, but yeah, we're we're going to look a lot at the practical life that was going on and how that impacts the putting the baby in the basket. So here we go. All right. Uh, now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him any longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, and she coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw that it was a baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, his, we don't know his name yet, then his sister asked the, the, the daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women? To nurse the baby for you. Yes, go, she answered. So the woman, girl went and she got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him and the child grew older. She took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Here we go. That's where we're going to end up. Trust me. But we got a lot of, we got a lot of details. 
There's a lot covered in these verses. Remember, verses are written as an outline, and the story is all in between them. So, uh, yeah, Aram is considered Jochebed's, uh, not Aram, sorry, Amaram. Amaram? Amaram? Oh, I know. It's terrible. Bob's over here just shaking his head like, really? Why do you keep trying to say uh, foreign names? You have no clue how to do this. It's true. I don't. It's true. I don't. I don't I don't know why I try. I try because I want to. I want to say it. I'm sure it's beautiful. Uh, so in this culture of fear, um, Aram, Amram, who's a Levite, grandson of a Levi. He gets married. He has two children, Aaron and uh, a, a daughter. Oh, man. Forgot her name. Anyways, she's obviously involved in these verses. Now, it says, tradition says, oral tradition, Hebrew teaching says, that they separated during this time, this this culture of fear and death and compliance. They were like, it's we shouldn't be together because we don't want to have any more children. We don't want to bring these children into this culture. What if we have a, a male baby and something happens and he gets discovered and he's ripped from my arms or our arms and thrown into the river? They didn't want to have to deal with that. I, I can't say I blame them. That's that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing for any, not even tough. That's a that's an actually mild word. To have a child ripped from your arms and thrown into a river. It's devastating. And they probably had seen it occur to people around them. So they didn't they didn't want to risk it. So they separated. And they went along and did their jobs, but they they didn't sleep together. So Miriam and Aaron were enough. Thank you, I thank you, Bob. Miriam, yes, was the daughter. Aaron was the was their son. Now it's it's again stated that when Miriam was six, uh, that's when they separated. Uh, Jochebed became a midwife. And Miriam assisted. So here you have what will become the mother of Moses as a midwife. And Jochebed, uh, uh, Miriam, his sister, was going to become an assistant. So she was training to be a midwife. So in all of this, uh, Miriam is given credit in the oral traditions for going to her parents and saying, you guys should not be separated. And what she was really saying, and, and people believe she was probably between the ages of six and eight years old, which if you've ever been around a six or eight year old, I, I have a uh, currently at the time of this recording, a seven going on eight year old granddaughter. And she's a firstborn and she is incredibly astute and observant and very precise as most firstborns are. And I totally could see this conversation happening in her, uh, from her to her parents, especially 
especially in the culture that she was in, in which even more, um, I don't want to say pressure, expectations were on children to grow up quickly. Because women, girls, were often married off, you know, by the between the ages of 12 and 15. That's another whole uh, cultural thing we might get into someday. But, but let's just say you're in this expectation. You have to learn things. You have to get things going right away. You have to start putting together reasoning skills fairly quickly, problem-solving skills fairly quickly. And the, and the Jewish community, the Hebrew community, would have been very astute on this sort of thing because they don't want to lose their culture. Remember, as much as the culture of fear and death and control was coming from Egypt, the Hebrews also had a culture that said, we are going to protect our own. We're not going to intermingle, intermarry with, with the Egyptians. We're going to maintain our faith in God. We're going to look to him for our deliverer. We're going to create a culture that says it's us against them. It's us. And no matter what they do to us, they will not break us. And we will not be ignorant. And we will train our children. And we will continue to have babies. And we will continue to to value the family. We don't care what the Egyptians do to us. We will not let them break us. So we got a hundred plus years of, of that sort of mentality getting steeped deep within the heart of the Jewish community. The Hebrews walk around and they may be told to do menial tasks, embarrassing tasks, humiliating tasks, not all of them, but some of them might. And they don't do it with a heart that says, oh, you're, oh, I'm just a menial servant. Oh, I'm just a slave. They did it with a heart that said, I don't care what you do. I know who I am. I am God's chosen child. Now, listen, there's something all of us could learn from this. Because so many people approach God like he's a, a mean uh, taskmaster from the Pharaoh. They approach him like he's going to beat me if I don't behave right. And they don't approach him like a child of God. The Hebrews, at the, you got to give them incredible props for maintaining this mindset that they are the child of God. It did not matter what what's been, and and this is true down throughout history. It doesn't matter what was done to the Hebrews. It doesn't matter who overran their country, who took them into into captivity. We we'll go into that when we get into the, those books. Who knows what season that will be of the epic narrative? They did not lose their identity as the chosen ones of God. Now. It's in that culture. It's in that sort of uh, core value that someone like a seven or eight-year-old girl would go to her mom and dad, or maybe just her mom to begin with, and say, why aren't you and dad sleeping together? Why aren't you together like other moms and dads? And if and if Miriam, uh, not Miriam, if, if, uh, if, you know, whoever, one of the parents or both of them are saying, oh, you know, it's we we got you. You're wonderful. We got your brother Aaron. He's awesome. We just don't want to have any more children. It's very dangerous. You know, so-and-so lost their child. An Egyptian saw him and, you know, grabbed him. From, we, we, we just don't think we should do that. And Miriam, you know, would ask a question like a seven or eight-year-old child, like, but what about God? Like, why don't we trust him? And man, I tell you, I've been called out like that. I've been called out like that by my children. And I totally could see my grandchild doing this as well. I totally could see a grandchild 
pulling this stunt. Or like I said, even one of my kids. But but what about God, Dad? I mean, I tell you, oh, man, it just goes right to your heart. Because I'm there teaching my child, you know, trust God. He's good. He's He'll come through for you. Uh, you know, believe the best. You know, God, God's always there. And then I don't behave that way. And one of my children are like, well, what about God, Dad? It's just like, oh. So as an adult, it's easy to lose sight, right? It's easy to get to look at the complicated negative culture that's around us and say, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna find a way around it. I'm gonna navigate this without trusting the goodness of God. And it takes a child's observation of it to come alongside you and say, but what about God, Dad? What about God, Mom? And that's the way I picture this conversation going. What about it? Why are you, in essence, divorced out of fear of an earthly king? When God tells us to stay together, God says to have a family. God says that that when you you know when you are together, you should stay together forever. Because they had effectively divorced each other, even though they were you know in essence living together. And if you're not going to, you know, go through the process of actually being together, right, then you are in essence saying, we don't trust God. We don't trust his goodness. We don't trust his protection. So I'm guessing after whatever incident or interaction they had with their daughter, they probably walked away going, you know, she's right. Now, I think a a good parent, and I don't know if this happened, but I think a good parent would say, to their child, you're right. Thanks for calling me out. I re- I did that. I I remember. I mean, I believe in, in God healing people. I truly do. I I love to pray for people who are who are sick and in pain. Do I see Do I see them healed every time? Nope. But I love to do it. I love to show people that God does love them enough that I'm willing to pray for them. And I have seen people healed, not all of them. But anyways, I remember, you know, my daughter, I remember her calling me out on one of those things where I knew somebody was in pain and she was like, are you going to pray for them? And I was like, uh, yep. <laughs> I wasn't gonna, but I am now. Why? Because the kids see things clearly. Now, they started, let's just say they, they got back together. Moses' parents got back together. Now, Egyptian astrologers, again, now this is extracurricular readings. Egyptian astrologers had seen that the baby of the deliverer, the baby that was going to deliver the Hebrews, and from their perspective, wipe out the nation of, of the Egyptians, that it would come through the water. So that's one of the main reasons why the babies were just whacked over the head. They were thrown into the river because because the Pharaoh wanted to appease the God of the Nile. That's why they were throwing them in the river. Not because he had a, you know, a, a vindictive thing about feeding the crocodiles or making sure that the snapping turtles got lots of things to to nibble on. No. He did it because the astronomer, astrologers, the magicians, the sorcerers, what, what the wise men, the wise ones. There's all kinds of names for them, but they had dreams and 
prophetic writings that they believed said that the that the deliverer of the Hebrews and the destroyer of the nation would come from the river. So it was really important to keep the river God happy. And that's where child sacrifice in the name of national security, in the name of we're gonna we're gonna do what's right here, even if it even if it looks bad. We're we're gonna do what you know doesn't make any logical sense. We're gonna do it because we're the government and we decide what's best for everyone. So we're gonna keep the river god happy and we're gonna throw the uh, the Hebrew baby boys in there. Now sages believe, and again this one this one's you know whatever this is one of those whatever things that the day the edict went forth from Pharaoh that said, throw the uh, Hebrew baby boys in the river, that was the day that Moses was uh, conceived and or born, one of those two. Now, I have no idea, but, uh, you know, what what are you going to do? Part of me says it kind of fits in that, in that when the edict went when I mean the edict went forth because Moses had been born and the and the enemy uh would have seen that and been like, whoa, like God God got his man in. Like <laughs> no. This goes to the mentality that God's a puppet master and has specific, you know, people that have to be born in order for certain things to happen. And he has to step in and make certain things happen in order to make his his will go forward. I don't ascribe to that mindset. You guys know this. But I do understand not everybody who listens to this ascribes to that mindset. It's pretty radical. I don't mind talking about it or even, def- I guess, defending it. I, I consider it more of a conversational piece. But but if even if you believe I mean, if you believe that God is a puppet master, then yes, you could see God saying, okay, the parents that I need to get together have been separated. He, you know, he works with the little, with the girl who, who convicts her parents who get back together and they, they conceive that night. And nine months later, as the edict goes forth, the enemy's like, oh no, I've been foiled again. And he says, we need to kill all the babies. And the and the Pharaoh's like, yes, we need to kill all the babies. And and there you go. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I do know this. The enemy loves to kill people. He doesn't care if they're Hebrew or Egyptian. And if he can kill babies, it's even better. And we went into that in pretty extensive detail in, in uh in last episode. So all of this is happening. And eventually we'll just say they give birth to a child, right? Cause there it is. <laughs> in verse two, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Once again, nine months of life, just flippity flipped away with the, with a brief sentence. And she saw he was a fine child. Mm. <laughs> All right. He was a good child. He was a pleasant child. What does that mean? It means generally he was just awesome. I don't know if you've ever been around a good baby, but they tend to be very pleasant, right? Agreeable. Um, They're good looking. Not all babies are good looking. I mean, you always say that they're good looking, but you know, internally, they're not always good looking. Some of them look pretty rough when they come out. They've been beat up pretty good or they're, you know, they're covered in cheese ish thing. Anyways, (laughs) 
Move on, Bob. There's really no need. <laughs> My engineer's just shaking. He said, stop now. Do not go down the road of describing every newborn that you've been around. All right, I won't. But I've been at, a, I've been at five births. So I've personally seen how different they can come out. This one came out looking great. Uh, they can have a, you know, he, it talks about, uh, it would also tie into the meaning, sorry, of being like happy. It, there would be a general like look of kindness on his face. The sense of understanding that when, you know, some babies, you talk to them and they just seem to know what you're saying. You, you have no idea why, but you tell them they're cute and they smile. You tell them they're a good boy and they just coo back at you. And you just want to keep talking to them because you think, he knows what I'm saying. They know what I'm saying. I can tell. I can tell. I tell them things and they smile back at me. Like that <laughs> That sort of uh, interaction is what's going on here. And and it seems to be almost supernatural in its, in its uh, detail that Moses is this beautiful he's a beautiful child and in its in its uh supernatural nuances of the word the sages the oral speakers of these speak about that there was a light when he was born that he just seemed to glow and they give god credit for that 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 at some level the spirit of god just filled the room to the point where those that were in the room were like, we don't know what he's marked for, but clearly this, this kid is different. This kid is different. We need to protect him. Now, they would have wanted to protect him anyways because they clearly have been doing that any, uh, you know, for a while, which is why the edict went out, is because the, the baby boys had been protected. People hid them for as long as possible and then tried to get them out of the country. They would, they, would, uh, they would give them to merchants on the river. Say, please take my child. Like anything to keep a child alive. I, I've seen situations in third world countries where that's true. Where people are so desperate, they don't care if they even get to raise the baby. They want the child to live. There's something so internally, uh, I'll say passionate for a mom that if there's any way to keep a child alive, they will do it. And their hope is someday, maybe I'll see them again. Someday, maybe we'll see them again. It's, it's, it's crazy. I, I can't explain it. It's supernatural. So, so this, this uh, oh, side note, yes, some Jews believe at this point that that Moses was also sinless or at least spiritually perfect. Now, I do not agree with that, but that's the way they see it, which is, I just mentioned it because academically, I think it's uh, interesting that that's the way that they view Moses, which goes on to places where Moses, when we get in, you know, deeper in the story where you're like, wait, Moses did that? It's like they, they have to mm, do what I would call theological gymnastics <laughs> to excuse Moses' behavior. <laughs> and I laugh because Christians do it as well, because, because so many who believe that God kills people, they have to do theological gymnastics to excuse the fact that God was righteous in doing it. Anyways, we'll, 
Uh, trust me, we will have opportunity to get deeper into that. Okay, move along. I am. So she hid him for for three months. That's the last part of verse two. She hid him for three months. Now, this would not have been difficult if she has is, is a midwife. Now, I know it's some of you are like, uh, you know, well, my pastor said, just, just think about this. She's a midwife. She's around infants all the time. It was not unusual for midwives to also be nursemaids. Because as as slaves who give birth to children, they couldn't watch the babies, they couldn't take the babies to work with them. So the midwife would also be a nursemaid. She would also be feeding children. So those that are supervising this world, the taskmasters, the slave masters, not all of them have whips, but they they you know they're watching everything. They're they're on every street corner. Right, it's a sign of intimidation. It's like putting out the national guard, and you know, on every on every street corner. And I've been in countries where that's true. The army is everywhere. It's intimidation, and that's one of the ways you control people. So, in that intimidation, people were careful. But it would, you know, she uh, uh, Moses's mom would have been marked as a midwife. And they would have seen her carrying children up and down the street on a regular basis. They would have seen her feeding the children. Like this would not have been strange. What they would have checked periodically is, is that a male baby? So by hiding him, maybe she dressed him a little different. Maybe she wrapped him in, in, in clothes. Maybe, maybe she, I mean, I would avoid confrontation. Maybe periodically she had a conversation with an with a you know an army guy, and I'm not saying they were all mean, horrible people. Maybe some of them were friendly. Maybe some of them understood what was going on and understood this to be just a radical plan from the government. But be that as it may, she hid him for three months, and was a, when it wasn't safe anymore. Now it's it's just it's also just so you know that word hid means. She hid he was, uh, you know, uh, she hid him in that there were mandated inspections, right? So she had to be careful. After three months, something was going to make the risk of this too great. I don't know what changed at three months. Maybe the mandate became stricter. Maybe, maybe the, the, you know, the midwives were told they could no longer, um, have the infants with them, you know. I, I may, maybe the government instituted, uh, you know, some wonderful benefit for all the Hebrews. They were going to put together nurseries where the Egyptian women uh, could keep an eye on how the babies were being raised. I don't know. Something shifted because it would not, again, have been unusual for a midwife to have a three-month-old child with them and to be feeding them. That's the part I want I want you guys to to use your imagination for. What shifted at 3 months that made this next plan go into place? So she came up with a with a plan. She could no longer hide them. She got a papyrus basket which is pre-made. She coated it with tar with pitch. She wanted to make sure no water would get in at, at in any level at any level. She placed the child in it. She put it among the reeds of the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. So, she makes this floating basket. 
She places it in the reed. She did not send it down the river. I know that in the cartoon version of this story, <laughs> he's rolling down the river and the crocodiles are are you know snapping at him and their tails are whipping up the water and he's in these all these waves. No, that's I mean fine. It's a great cartoon. That's not what the language states. The language indicates he was placed. He was he was he was brought out fairly deep, like off the shoreline, and he was placed in the reeds so he wouldn't float down the river. They wanted him to be protected from being found. Like I said, something shifted after three months after his birth. They did not send him down the river. I I know it's I know I've heard the sermons. It's a sweet story of the mom crying on the shoreline and pushing him out and watching him go and saying, I just have to trust God. I don't know what will happen to my baby. Like, I, I, I know, I know. And I don't want to steal that from you, but it's just not there. It's just not there. But it's fine if it's in your head. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. I'll continue. But he would have been far enough out in the, out in the reeds that it would have been hard to reach him without going into the water. Now, things like, things like this might have been done before. There's nothing that indicates this is the first time that a Hebrew baby was put in a, in a pitch-covered basket and put on the river to try and be hidden from, from the Egyptians. And it could have been going on for days, weeks, before the next verse. Right? We don't know. We don't know. And I'm guessing... It has been at least a few days and maybe even months. They go, she, you know, the first few, the first few days, I'm sure were very nerve wracking. Would it be, would he be seen? Would he make too much noise? Would he, uh, you know, start, start uh, attracting crocodiles? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? But it, it worked out. The basket rocked. He slept most of the time. Remember, he's a very pleasant child. If you've been around pleasant children, right they do not freak out when they're hungry. They just kind of whimper. Uh, we, you know, again, I've been around a lot of babies. Some of them, they get hungry. Oh my gosh! Like if you don't stick something in their mouth right now, they are like they're in hysterics. And don't even try to pacify them. You put a pacifier in their mouth, and you're like you're like wearing the pacifier. Like it comes out like a shotgun. Just no, no, no. Pleasant children are not like this. Pleasant children. They kind of whimper a little bit, like, eh, 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 and then you you can pacify them, and they'll just be like, "Oh, okay, I'll just suck on this for a while," and then and whatever. So that's Moses. He's a he's a he's a pleasant child. Now the princess, verse verse five, the Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. The princess is is on. The river to bathe. This is not a daily occurrence. Again, another reason why I think this probably this floating basket thing had been going on for for at least a little while. And usually, where they bathed, the river was actually tiled for royalty. They would they would have been. It's almost like a, you know, so that their feet wouldn't wouldn't get dirty. So you didn't have to step in the muck. It honestly, it's brilliant the way that they would do it. And and there are there are places 
that indicates, uh, but through archaeology, photo not photos, <laughs> photos. There are actual actual video recordings. No, there are archaeological finds that said uh, that show that there are places in the Nile that the Egyptians actually tiled the floor of the Nile all the way across from one end to the other. And you would step down and and you could, uh, during certain times of the year, you could actually walk across the Nile in the water without getting in the mud. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, they were brilliant people. And they loved the Nile. They took care of the Nile. They fished the Nile. They hunted the Nile. But they also adored the Nile. They, it was a god to them. And, and uh, so, the you know, Pharaoh's daughter going down to bathe, she would have had a private place to do that and probably a well-tiled or, or stone area to sit in or and, and uh, bathe in. So she does her bathing, and then it says her attendants were walking along the riverbank. So she probably went for a walk. Again, this is probably a very non-public area. It wouldn't make sense that that Miriam would have put the baby in a very public area where, you know, like, let's go down to the Central Park and we'll put the baby down there. No, it would have been a very remote area and a place that, that the Pharaoh's daughter would have felt comfortable walking after her bath. So she, she gets down there. Sister is observing. She wants to, you know, she's just keeping them safe. Uh I'm sorry, I'm reading my notes. Uh, what a man. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've already covered that. Yeah, 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 good, good, good. Oh, yeah. Now, some of you may think, again, um, what kind of woman would do this? Purposely place her male baby in the path of an Egyptian royalty. I don't think she did. Now, some of you might think she did. I don't think she did. I don't think she was like, Put the basket down where the princess goes to bathe every other day or every week. And maybe she'll find him and have mercy upon him and take him in. No, no, you, you, seriously? You really think she's risking that? Maybe you do. Again, if it's your story, it's, it's your imagination. Have fun with it. I'm guessing no. You guess all you want. Now, did she get the plan or timing from God? I don't know. Did God say, listen, send him down the send him down the river? I've got plans for him. I don't know. Maybe. I don't think so. But honestly, this is just my opinion. I don't think God does puppet master work, but you might be comfortable with it. So the princess is drawn, her attention is drawn to the basket. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She sees something that doesn't look natural. It looks like a man-made item is floating. This happens to everybody that walks along any any body of water. You can walk, you know, you can walk for miles along a beach. What are you looking for? You're just looking, but what stands out to you? Something that doesn't look natural. Something that isn't water. Something that doesn't normally you don't normally see. Now, some people look for really small things like sea glass. You know, they're looking for something that shines. My wife does this. She's amazing at it. Honestly, breathtakingly amazing. You get tuned into something that isn't quite right. And she can not only, like, she can tell the brown glass from the from the blue grass and the green glass 
and the clear glass. I'm just like, they all look like tiny shells. They're just millions and millions of broken. And she'd be like, no, here's one. Like, how did she do that? Me, I'm looking for unusual things like, a you know, a boat that's half sunk or a tree. Like, these are the things I notice along the along the water bank. So I think she's walking along the river. She's looking. She's observing. And then something catches her eye because it doesn't look normal. And she's curious. What is that? And the servant's like, oh, that looks like a basket. It does look like a basket. What do you think's in it? I don't know. Well, go out there and get it. So she goes out. She sends a servant. Of course, she wasn't going to risk herself going in. She just took a bath. She's not getting in the in the mud. She sends her servant. Now the basket is brought in. And again, that phrasing is kind of interesting in the in the Hebrew because it can also also lend itself to the idea that that the arm stretched forth with uh, and the oral traditions again because they need God to show up and do these miracles all the time because they have to have this specific person in order for the will of God to be performed. The writer actually makes it seem as though God supernaturally extended the arm of the servant girl so she could reach the basket. That the water was too deep. And she couldn't quite get it, but God supernaturally stretched out her arm and suddenly she could grab the basket. Listen, if you want that, hang on to it. The basket is brought in. The basket is opened and it's discovered that there's a male baby in there. She saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So she takes pity on him, compassion to spare the child. She knows he's Hebrew. She can tell. She's, she's, you know, she could easily surmise this. This baby was put in the river to die. That's what she would guess. Anybody would. This is what, this is what the Hebrew baby boys are supposed to be done. You're supposed to see a Hebrew baby, <clears throat> throw him in the river. Now, granted, he was in a basket, but she would have thought, well, he was floated out in the river to die, and he didn't die. This baby was sent to die, and the river god protected him. The god of the Nile protected him. The god of the Nile pushed this basket into the reeds so he wouldn't die. And he looks good, and he's very pleasant in nature. And that she could see as a gift from the Nile god to her as an elite unmarried princess, she saw this male baby as an exception to the mandate from the Pharaoh. She decides to keep it. Why? Because why not? Literally, the, and you know, from her perspective, the river God gave me a gift. I'm an unmarried princess. I'm, I want children, and here is a child from the gods. I mean, honestly, this this was no like I'm going to hide this from my uncle or my my stepdad or whoever the pharaoh was to her. I'm going to hide it and and eventually you know get away with keeping it. No, she's like excited by this. She's excited, and and uh, you know Moses' sister comes running out. She's like, hey, hi, can I help you? She's like, oh, yes, 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 you can. Miriam, uh, wh- wh- why don't you, uh, 
What, what can you do for me? I don't know what to do. It's a baby. I'll tell you what I can do. I can go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you. Oh, yes. I can't nurse. I'm not pregnant. I, yes, yes. Ah, uh, yes. Go do that. <laughs> so basically Miriam, as a servant, offers to serve the Pharaoh's daughter, which of course she's more than willing to do or have her do because that's her job. She's a Hebrew girl. She should be serving me. So yes, go find somebody to nurse the baby. And off she went. And of course she went and got the mother. And she's like, you know, mom, 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 what happened? What happened to Moses? Oh, no, it's not Moses. We don't know his name. What happened? <laughs> it's just like, you're not going to believe what just happened. Tell me what happened. I'm trying to tell you what happened. Finally, no, no, listen, listen, listen. I'm watching and, and I see a group of people walking and I'm like praying to Yahweh to please keep the baby quiet. And the baby's quiet. Nobody's saying anything. But then I realized that it's the princess. She had just finished having a bath. She's walking down the river and her attendants are with her. And she stops and she's staring. And I'm like, no, please don't see it. Please don't see it. Because it's, it's camouflaged. It's not like it was painted red or orange. But she sees it. And she sends in her servant. Blah, blah, blah. She tells the whole story. She goes, now she needs someone to feed the baby. That's why I came to get you. Wow. I mean, the mom had to be like in a whirlwind. Just picture the whirlwind that the mom is feeling. Not only is her baby safe, but she's going to go get to feed the baby. And when she gets to the Pharaoh's daughter, she's saying to her, not only do I want you to feed her, I want you to take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Now this means a lot. This means a lot because she gives the order, take, which means go away, depart, proceed away from me. In other words, you're not staying in the palace with me, neither is this baby, but I want you to take it and I want you to nurse it. That means to feed it until it's done being fed. It's generally believed to be about, be about two years. Some believe it was up to six years. I, I, I get a little creeped out. Just I'm a Western male born and bred person. So for me, a six-year-old child nursing just freaks me out. Okay, it just does. But I do know cultures that do it. And I've met them here in America. You know, a guy <laughs> I just have. So... I don't know how long it is. Nobody does. Feel free if somebody tells you this is exactly how old Moses was when he entered back into the palace. You just smile and think to yourself, you don't know that. So it says she took, which means she laid hold of him. She took him away. She, she took possession of Moses. She was paid to nurse the boy. Probably continued being a midwife, but she was paid to nurse the boy. Listen, all the, all the officials would have had to know this was happening. This was not a secret thing. All the taskmasters, whatever had shifted at that three-month point, whether it was mandatory inspection, we'll call it, of every baby to make sure these male babies aren't being hidden because clearly it was being hidden and they needed to stop it. So maybe it was that. I don't know, but, but the taskmasters would have need, needed to know this woman is holding the princess's child. 
and it's a male Hebrew child, but it was a gift to her from the, from the Nile God, from the river God. All of this would have been generally general public news. And she, she was paid to nurse him. And she, she may have delayed, let's say, delivering the baby, as any mother might do. After it was clearly done nursing, she might have just kept nursing it for a little while. Like, oh, uh, yeah, no, he's still nursing. You know, it's not like at first they, you know, nurse pretty regularly every three hours or whatever. But eventually it's kind of like, well, he's, you know, he's eating or he's doing, you know, he's taking goat's milk. I don't know, but I still nurse him twice a day. I still nurse him before bed. Like I nurse him when he cries. So there may have been a delay. Maybe she delayed it another six months, maybe another year, but eventually uh, he goes to the Pharaoh. It says, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. You see, the princess wanted this child, and she loved this child. She saw Moses as a gift from the gods, a Hebrew that was not killed, a Hebrew that was delivered to her. Now, all the time that he's being raised, he knows that he was a Hebrew. He knows that he was drawn out of the water. He believes and is taught, you were a gift from the Nile gods to Pharaoh's daughter. And he was raised and educated to excel far above all those that were, that were also born to Pharaoh because he was considered a gift from the gods. He had expectations that were, that were much higher. So uh, his name being drawn from the water means... Uh, to reach out, to bring out of danger, to bring out of violence. It carries a nuance of transition, a place of transition. And she probably had no clue as to how true his name really was. To bring people out of danger, to bring to, to be drawn out of violence. From her, the perspective was she was he was drawn out. He was taken from the river where he was thrown in to die, thrown in to be eaten, to be violently destroyed. But I drew him out of the water and I put him in a place where he could transition into what the God of the Nile would want him to be. It's a fascinating, fascinating story, I think, anyways. I, I hope you enjoyed all of the crazy uh, world that Moses was brought into. And maybe, maybe we got a few more little things to think about than, than just what the video showed us when we were children or what the movie showed us when we were, well, if we're, you're old like me, you know, back in the day. But anyways, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you had a fabulous time today on the Epic Narrative. I will see you again next week, or at least next episode. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. All right. So here's a quick thought. I hope you can always crack yourself up. Uh, <laughs> I do. Oh, man. I can't tell you how much fun I have just <laughs> between myself and my 
I know. Engineer Bob. Me and Engineer Bob, we have a good time together. Anyways, I hope you, you always can crack yourself up. So in this, in this week's episode, or for you, the third episode, if you aren't listening week to week, but you're binging it, which is awesome, uh, I, I, I do hope that in some way we continue uh, to bring about the idea of possibilities, especially in the area of time. So many opportunities within the scripture for us to skip how long it takes something for happen, to happen. So many want Moses to be pushed out into the river one, you know, one day and the next day be found. There's, there's just, it's okay. It's okay. It's not wrong to, to look at the story that way and to believe the story that way. It makes for much better, um, Sunday school teachings and, and services and, and movies, uh, to kind of get it over with quickly. Cause, cause most of the time you want to get him being trained in the palace and, uh, you know, and, and getting named Moses. I also I also hope that it, at some level your your position regarding um, why they were being thrown into the Nile, why that was uh, needed. I I found that very fascinating that within the the, the writings and the the prophetic um, ideas of the priests. It was out of the Nile that the, that the conqueror of Egypt would come, would come, that the one who freed the slaves would come from the Nile. So for them, it made sense that you would want to sacrifice to the Nile God to keep it from bringing forth that person. And, and, and the way that Moses came out of that, well, it wasn't Moses. Like I said, we don't know his name until I think next week. (laughs) No, dude. We named him this week, right? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot. I just listened to the episode again. Anyways, uh, the idea was, well, he's one of us. Like he was a gift from the God to the Egyptian princess. Fascinating concept. And again, they had, they, they, in their minds, they had an opening for that to happen because Joseph rescued the Egyptians and he came from the Hebrews. So the idea that uh, someone who's favored of the gods that didn't come, that wasn't an Egyptian, was was part of their fabric, part of their dynamic. So there wasn't this weird, um, yeah, there's, there wasn't this weird concept behind the idea of, of the of Moses coming out of the river and, in essence, being an Egyptian and being for the Egyptians. It was it, it was there. The concept was there, and. Yeah, and that'll play into the into the rest of the story. You'll see, you'll see, you will see how it plays in. It's just, I don't know. I have fun. I hope you have fun. I know that I know that I have radical views regarding the goodness of God and the freedom of of God that He allows His people to choose. I don't see this whole story as being orchestrated by God in order to make sure that His will gets done. His will is always for, for freedom and for love and for hope and for joy and for peace to be a part of everything, to bring life. We talked about that last year, last week. Life and freedom are key principles in the governance of, of God's kingdom. So he's not going to manipulate, in my opinion, my opinion, these are my thoughts. He's not going to manipulate literally hundreds of people to make sure that his will gets done. 
that would be counterintuitive to the kingdom that he's he's ruling. So I, I understand why people want it. I do understand the theology behind it. But for me, it doesn't match up to the character of Jesus, and, and it doesn't match up to the character of God. Because in a covenantal relationship, character is everything. You don't make covenant with somebody who's going to be switching characters in the middle of one or change characters, characteristics of, it, of their character with the second one to override the first one. And we've talked about that. In season one, we'll, so I'm sure we'll talk about it again because we have another covenant coming up here right where the sacrificial system is, is engaged. But, man, we've got weeks to go before that happens. So I hope you continue to enjoy the epic narrative. And if you can support us, click that link, give a tax-deductible donation through uh, the Revive the Way portal. You can't get to that portal through the Revive the Way website. It is a specific portal just to support It'll say Switzer on it. Uh, it's just to support uh, what we do, both with Revive the Way and the podcast. I mean, we need we need eight hundred dollars a year just to pay, just to upkeep the apps and the website uh, subscriptions. Eight hundred dollars. Like I said, I don't work. I currently, for those of you that are following me there, we we are working, but it's in exchange for our RV site and our utilities. So it, we don't have to pay as much, which is great. We work for that. But again, we don't have any, any job. We definitely don't have any benefits. Uh, so anything you can give to help us out would be great, but we need to pay for the podcast. Uh, I still don't pay my producer. I don't pay the admin. Uh, both of those are worthy people who should be compensated. We don't have anything to do that with, with if you can help us out then, uh, yeah, we might be able to take them out to dinner. Or if you help us out a lot, who knows what we might be able to do to just honor them and bless them for uh, now it'll be three long seasons of the epic narrative that they have volunteered their time and their heart and their incredible talent to pull this off. So if you can give, click that link. If you can't find the link there, you can go to my website. It's live there. If you are friends with me on Facebook, it's there. If you're friends with me on Instagram, I, I identify on, on Instagram as Dad Switzer, Dad Switzer. You can follow me there. The link is live on my Instagram page. If you can help uh, help support us and move us forward, that would be a fabulous encouragement to myself and others who are involved. Have yourself a great day, everyone. I'll see you next episode. everyone thanks for listening if you like what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use you can also reach out to bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com see you next week guys